Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we are going to talk to historian Sasha Mullally about her newly released book on immigrant doctors and their role in the implementation and success of Canadian Medicare. Sasha Mullally is a professor in the Department of History at the University of New Brunswick. A medical historian, she has been working on the history of doctors and their practices in Canada for many years, as well as the medical diasporas from other countries which have so enriched Canada. Before joining UNB, she was co-director of the History of Medicine program at the University of Alberta and has held visiting professorships at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden and at McGill University in Montreal. She is the past president of the Canadian Society for the History of Medicine. This interview is being recorded on October 23rd, 2020, just weeks before her book, Foreign Practices, Immigrant Doctors in the History of Canadian Medicare, is due to be released by McGill-Queen's University Press. Sasha, thanks so much for joining us today. Greg, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Sasha, your co-author is David Wright, who I previously interviewed on Witness to Yesterday on his history of Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. Now, the two of you have been researching this subject of foreign doctors for over a decade now. What got both of you so interested in this subject in the first place? Well, uh, David and I started talking about this when I was a doctoral student, actually. (laughs) I was doing work on the history of rural medicine, and I was giving a paper on supply and demand of health services in rural areas of Atlantic Canada and the valorization of the country doctor. And in particular, I was talking about a a famous one in Cape Breton named Carlton Lamont Macmillan, and he was a a celebrated physician in a lot of mid-century popular texts and became somewhat of an icon um, as sort of the last of his kind. Anyway, David stuck his hand in the air and asked a question about medical immigration in this context of scarcity, and it was a really good question. And it uh, it came from uh, professional and personal knowledge. His father-in-law, Dr. Jagdish Gupta, the ophthalmologist whose story opens the book, um, immigrated to the Sydney Cape Breton area with a number of other physicians from South Asia just after the period I was investigating. So they are the heirs of the country doctor. And there's this, uh, Greg, there's a stark transitional disconnect between the lament of the death of uh, the old-fashioned country doctor and the new realities of healthcare in this largely rural part of Canada. Um, I, I recognize that Sydney is not rural, but it serves a large proximate rural area with a settler heritage and identity that's quite dominant Scottish. Uh, and increasingly, these folks were served by new Canadian physicians in centralized hospital and clinic-based practices from the Indian subcontinent. And, um, and they are recruited and welcomed in a sort of chain migration over the 60s and 70s. It's kind of unusual. It prompted a lot of conversations and scratching the surface. Uh, The surface of this led to uh, the questions that took up more than a decade of historical research and resulted in our book. Wow. What one very good question can lead to. So, Sasha, take us through Canada's dependence on international medical graduates in the post-war era. Tell us about it and answer the question of whether Canada was really any different than the United States 
or the United Kingdom, for example, in terms of its dependence on immigrant doctors? Yeah, those are very big questions, Greg. Um, it's true that the uh, the overall migration of health professionals from the global south to the global north accelerated across the board in the post-war decades. And in fact, the term brain drain was coined in the 1970s to refer to the loss of highly qualified personnel. Uh, these would be personnel mainly in healthcare, but they also um, it, it also referred to the loss of, of skilled people in the applied science fields like engineering. Um, so this loss of people from India to places like the UK and the US primarily, as well as to the rest of Europe, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And uh, in Canada, uh, dramatic economic expansion, population growth, and of course the concomitant expansion of the healthcare system to to service this uh, this larger and wealthier population, created a lot of opportunities that local and national labor markets could not meet. And so that is the that's the overall context. Now, one can say, in terms of your question that dealt with differences. In this period, one can say that the net recipient country of this brain drain was the United States. And Canada and the UK, by contrast, were both donor and recipient nations, to use the terminology of the day. I see. Yeah. Mm. So doctors come to Canada, for instance, seeking opportunities within the hospital, medical school, um, so the general health care system as a result of universal health care. But at the same time, Canada was beginning to lose physicians to the United States. So you see, it's um, in this context. It's you don't you can't even really talk about donor and recipient nations as much as you can just see nation states as nodes on a larger transnational circulation of health human resources, really. And some um, some nodes like the United States are, have a have a stronger uh, gravitational uh, pull, and others like Canada have an occasional pull. But the but the circulation is robust, and that. Um, and that is the that is the global context within which the book is situated. Well, in reading the book, it seems that the doctors come in two waves. At least that's how uh, I read it. Uh, the first wave was in the 1950s and early 1960s. The second wave in the late 1960s to the mid 70s. Uh, where did the doctors come from in each of these two waves? In other words, we're was the source different in, in each of the ways? And then can you briefly describe the challenges that these doctors face in the first wave and then in the second wave? So it's true that from the 1950s to um, the moment of the Canadian Centennial Celebration in 1967, uh, the bulk of the foreign-trained physicians came to us from England, Scotland, and Ireland, and these were favored nations uh, in the um, in the Canadian immigration uh, system and in the application of Canadian immigration regulations. Um, so that's where the first wave comes from predominantly. Now, this changes quite dramatically in 1967 with the introduction of what may be called merit criteria for evaluating applications for immigration. And this was a result of the 1967 Immigration Appeals Board Act, which introduced uh, the points system that favored highly educated professionals. Previous to that, we had given um, different nationalities favored status, but that was, uh, that was abandoned with this act. And these points were allocated according to things like your, your level of education, your ability to read and write French or English, et cetera. 
And suddenly, changing the criteria from nationality to skills diversified the complement of physicians who were coming to Canada considerably. And in medicine, it created a pathway for nationals from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, for instance. These are individuals who, who come from the Indian uh, subcontinent, but who had um, often trained in the UK. So they had these British credentials um, that were very valuable in the Canadian context. And because we were only evaluating skills and credentials, uh, they could now, um, immigrants from these parts of the world could now come with relative ease to Canada. And so this is what diversifies the complement as we open our doors to new pools of prospective um, physicians. Now, there were, in terms of um, the challenges they faced, they were driven by push and pull factors. Um, the pull factor was often quality of life and standard of living. Um, but especially in the earlier wave, it's important to point out that many foreign doctors from the UK told us that they were fleeing the National Health Service or the NHS. The British health system uh, at the time was limiting the access to consultant positions for young British medical graduates. And it was difficult for them, they found, to secure uh, positions in their preferred specialties or even in their preferred locations. These tended to be locked down by established doctors. And there was a sense that the whole system was being um, run by, um, by a connection rather than merit. That's right. And uh, just on that point, they were paid very differently. Isn't that right? They were paid quite differently. They were paid quite a bit less, and they tended to have salaried positions. Yeah. And this was creating a lot of professional dissatisfaction. It was pushing um, a lot of the British-trained um, physicians in the early years to places like Canada. It was... Um, in the words of one doctor we interviewed, it was worse than being married, according to this respondent, because if you were married, at least you could get a divorce. Um, now, when this changes and when we have this broader and bigger complement of doctors coming from uh, a wider variety of places from around the world, it's true that some of these physicians, particularly if they came from racialized groups, were racialized in their contexts in, in Canada. Physicians themselves did, didn't like to emphasize this in their narratives of coming to Canada and in their narratives of practice. And they tended to downplay these experiences because I think um, overall, as an immigrant group, they um, they experienced a, a good, uh, quite, quite quite a welcoming environment. They were, after all, a category of professionals that were really needed in Canada at the time. Um, but some did get overworked in group practices where they would take on salaried positions. Um, and, and then they would, they would get worked quite vigorously to support practices that they didn't really, um, have a stake in. And I, there are a couple of poignant cases that we uncovered over the course of our research, but others fell in love and had their, fell in love with Canada and had their curiosity roused by the geographic variety of the, the places you could live and the, the practices that you could have. So I would say that that is what differentiates these two waves, and, and those were the different kinds of experiences that they might have. Right, and many did stay. But going back to the, uh, those physicians that came from the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, whether they were originally from the Indian subcontinent or uh, they were uh, British in origin, what was it that uh, made them so suspicious of Medicare? in Canada? Because, um, of course, some arrived before Medicare, some arrived after Medicare was introduced. Uh, but they, many seem to share this 
both suspicion and at times outright opposition to Medicare, yet Medicare in Canada was quite different than the NHS in the UK. And I would say uh, allowed much more independence in terms of choice and practice for doctors than in the UK. So exactly why were they so opposed to this? Well, I think uh, I think in many cases their their opposition was um, was only initial, Greg. And I think that the I think that the reason that there was the this opposition is because they didn't uh, initially see the differences between uh, what they were leaving and what they were coming to in terms of um, health systems. I, I think of many of these doctors who were who are immigrating quite young, and they would have been young at this moment, um, so they're not established individuals, and they had just made a significant choice to immigrate, throw their hat in a new professional circumstance in another country. Uh, They were very keen on establishing themselves in a context of professional autonomy. And this is a, a part of their narrative that struck me quite strongly. It seems to be the crux of their collective complaint when we when we do interview those who left the NHS in the 1960s. Now, these are individuals who are looking back from a position of, of a, where they are established and they've had good careers and, and they're looking back with equanimity <laughs> on, on their previous selves, right? But they, they, they talk about their decisions to leave in terms of this, um, this problem of personal choice. They wanted the freedom to choose their mode and area of practice, fearful of getting bogged down in residencies and specialties they didn't want to. Geriatrics was apparently a difficult specialty to get out of once you were streamed into it in in Britain at the time. So it's interesting, Greg, they did want to make a good living, but these people seem to be taking a long view of medical economics and believed that the private practice model um, provided them with that kind of flexibility and freedom. And, you know, um, once Medicare allowed uh, for the former, once it allowed for private practice, um, their opposition evaporated. And you know this, Greg, because you yourself have written about the establishment of medical liberalism in Canada. And you've written about the 1962 Saskatchewan doctor strike and what was motivating the doctors in that conflict. So... So it's fascinating, isn't it? Well, you and David make a very interesting claim, um, and that is that uh, really immigrant doctors were essential to the successful implementation of universal medical care coverage in Canada. So could we have successfully implemented Medicare without these immigrant doctors if we had done other things, or were they essential, uh, no matter how you look at it, to the implementation of Medicare? Well, I believe they were. And I'll I'll start by referencing that Saskatchewan doctor strike. It was strike-breaking immigrant doctors <laughs> who, um, who played a decisive role in bringing that conflict uh, to an end, or at least in the historical narrative, these, um, these doctors who were airlifted in kind of played, uh, played a key, a key role in, um, in bringing that conflict to, to a close. But, but broadly, more, more broadly uh, speaking, across the country, um, to meet the pent-up demand for healthcare services that was, you know, it, you started to feel it in 1957 after the Health Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act was passed and hospital um, services became free uh, for, for Canadians. And you could feel it building towards, you know, what would eventually be the date of 1968 when, when Medicare was enacted and all of a sudden provinces one by one 
opted in, you could see that, uh, that the pressure was, was building and, um, and that, and that the Canadian healthcare system was woefully understaffed and woefully unprepared in terms of health personnel to meet this demand. And it's important to point out that Canadian provinces from, we show from 1967 to about 1972 ended up licensing more new immigrant physicians than it was graduating from its own medical schools. And this was a situation without precedent in the 20th century. And the change in the physician um, population ratios over the first few years of Medicare, um, which coincided with this immigrant wave, immigration wave, is significant. Now, some jurisdictions didn't see a great change in their physician per population ratios at all. Like PEI in New Brunswick had had a pretty um, stable ratio and a pretty stable population, but. In Ontario, British Columbia, Quebec, you could see changes of up to 20 or 30% in the number of physicians who were, who were licensed and, and registered in any given year. And this is mainly due to immigration because medical schools, the ones that were being expanded and the ones that were being newly established in Canada at this time had not yet, um, graduated, um, these new cohorts of medical students. So all of this increase is coming from immigration. And all of this points to a situation where, where yes, we would have, we would possibly be looking at the failure of Medicare had it not been for immigrant doctors. That's a fascinating, um, review in terms of demand and supply. Uh, by the late 1970s, of course, that had changed, and uh, there was no longer this burning need to have uh, immigrant doctors fill spaces that were needed, at least in the cities in Canada. So there was a closing of the taps um, by both the medical profession uh, and governments. But the problem was, of course, as you point out so well, is that communities in rural and remote Canada still depended pretty heavily on immigrant doctors after the late 1970s. So how did this maldistribution work out in terms of public policy? And how was it dealt with within the medical profession itself? Well, once you start talking about rural health care, uh, Greg, I have a lot to say. <laughs> so, so, so bear with me as I frame this part of my argument. Um, it becomes clear to anyone who reads the, the public policy literature that yes, you know, by the early 1970s, um, the Canadian public was starting to sour on the whole idea of immigration. And, and people started to talk about immigrant doctors doing the hop, skip and jump is the phrase that uh, circulated at the time from rural and remote areas uh, to wealthier urban areas. So moving from Oport, Newfoundland to downtown Toronto right? Hop, skip, and jump. Once they get here, they do a few years of service and then they, they move into the cities. And Frank Miller, who is the Ontario Minister of Health, who coined this phrase or used it a lot anyway, um, he advanced the argument that we need to remove the preferential points for physician immigrants applying for landed status. And that's because there was this um, axiomatic association between the number of doctors and the cost of the health system, paying for all these extra doctors, billing uh, an over-serviced medical marketplace in Ontario um, was for Miller, um, quote, an extravagance that Ontario could not afford. And because of the power of the wealthier jurisdictions in, um, in Canada, they held sway. And indeed, um, by the mid-1970s, the preferential points were removed and, this, and the taps were turned off. 
And I love how we talk about doctors as if we're talking about the petroleum industry, as if, as if you can turn taps off and on and, you know, serve this community and not serve this community and, you know, pipe them this way and that way. When you're talking about a context of a private medical practice, of course, it's next to impossible to, uh, to guide the flow of, um, of entrepreneurial humans if that's the, the marketplace in which they're circulating. Um, but we were very concerned about this glut, um, and this oversupply and we accepted a narrative of scarcity, um, at that, at that particular moment. But there was an interesting debate, um, that sprung up in some public policy journals between Prairie medical economists. There was one named Nora Lou Noose at the University of Manitoba, and there was another uh, named Malcolm, Malcolm C. Brown in Alberta, who faced off against a British Columbia, um, analyst named Bob Evans. Evans was in favor of turning off the taps in the 1970s, and he wrote this really influential 1976 article in Canadian Public Policy where he claimed that a consensus was emerging about physician oversupply and that in Canada, nobody loves an immigrant doctor anymore. <laughs> and this, was, this is kind of a, a quotation that that's, uh, that's stuck, but both Noose and Brown had data that pointed that... Um, the point is that there was ample evidence that in Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, the fall of population physician ratios had been more rapid in rural areas than urban areas. So the net beneficiaries of these immigration policies were the rural areas of the Prairie West. And so Frank Miller might have been concerned about an overall hop, skip, and jump, but they were obviously doing things before they hop, skipped, and jumped to Toronto, and, and that was benefiting rural and remote communities um, in Western Canada. And Malcolm Brown, for his own part, you know, he launched a very spirited rejoinder to Evan's article about the cost of too many immigrant doctors by critiquing the fee-for-service system. Um, that billing system and how it drove service demand by incentivizing extra visits and incentivizing uh, procedures, what he called uh, doctor-initiated excess servicing. So the problem, in other words, wasn't too many doctors, but too many procedures and a system that incentivized um, incentivized what was bandied about at the time as remunerectomies <laughs> was sort of the <laughs> slang term that was used to describe, you know, these um, apparently superfluous uh, procedures. And in some circles, that was seen as the real problem. But it's the physician doctors, the immigrant physicians uh, who saved Medicare, uh, who were sort of seen as the problem at this at this point in time and not and not any kind, there wasn't any real conversation about the intrinsic problems with how we were organizing and paying for health services. So we found that very interesting, and that occupies a whole chapter on rural and remote health care. That's right. And uh, somewhat connected to that is the issue of group practices in Canada, some of which were set up in the resource towns, as you point out, uh, as well as uh, other areas of northern Canada. But Immigrant doctors were often more attracted to the group practices rather than setting up on their own when they first came to Canada. Can you describe why? Well, there are a number of practical reasons why an immigrant physician might opt at least initially to to join a group practice. Um, first of all, there's no overhead or investment required. <laughs> you can just show up and, uh, and start working and someone else has, has taken up the challenge of setting up the bricks and mortar of the, of the practice. But, but 
British doctors in particular were also used to this format or physicians in training who spent time in Britain were used to group practices. New doctors uh, who came through the the British system were used to hierarchies where they started off in a practice as a junior doctor, and then they would move through a, a variety of steps up to consultant as the year as the years wore on. And practices like that in Canada um, were keen to recruit new physicians who they could pay on a salaried basis. And yes, you would find them in industrial areas of the country where there would be high um, a high volume of insured workers before Medicare. Uh, this was very important that they had some kind of uh, employment-related insurance. Uh, places like Sid the Sydney area in Nova Scotia, Sault Ste. Marie in Ontario, um, Thompson, Manitoba, um, and so if you were an entrepreneurial senior doctor, you could make a lot of money by creating this hierarchical system and, and using, uh, junior doctors as a sort of salaried workforce. Now it didn't, uh, take, um, immigrant doctors to Canada long to figure out that they didn't need to stay there very long <laughs> and, and that you could find a real rotating door, um, situation established in some of these group practices. And the, the tenure as a junior doctor is usually pretty short because once they had a license from the medical council of Canada and whatever specialist board certification they might need. Most of the physicians who we have observed or talked to would leave, or they would uh, move up and take on a role within the practice uh, and a billing capacity within the practice um, that made them an equal partner. So it's an interesting phenomenon, Greg, and we don't know enough about the history of group practices in Canada, in my opinion. No, that's exactly right. It's There's just a real dearth of information, and I've certainly... Uh, read uh, in archival notes a great deal about the focus on group practice in the 1960s, but we know very little about it. Now let's move on to the ethical question involved in terms of immigrant doctors. And I dealt with this when I was cabinet secretary in Saskatchewan in the late 1990s. And uh, I actually had a visit from the South African ambassador who flew from Ottawa to Regina to meet with me and formally lay a complaint uh, that our government was too active in attracting uh, South African doctors to Saskatchewan. And I ex uh, explained at the time to him that the government had done nothing, that this was all done through physician networks. And that once a certain um, number of South African doctors have been established, they continue to contact their friends and colleagues from school in South Africa, and more and more would come. And of course, there would be a pattern of practicing for three or four years in Saskatchewan, sometimes a bit longer, and then moving to larger centers in Canada. But these doctors uh, were absolutely essential to providing services in rural Saskatchewan. So the question is, to what extent should policymakers have been concerned and maybe should continue to be concerned about the ethical issues involved in attracting immigrant doctors to Canada when it's causing a bit of a brain drain in those countries? Yeah, it's a very, very thorny question. And and very complex, but I'll um, I'll weigh in. <laughs> I it's 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 more my personal belief that when um, when Canadian jurisdictions accept and sometimes actively recruit and sometimes just passively accept um, uh, foreign trained physicians and other health workers 
from poorer nations, it does reflect an uneven playing field. Uh, and it is reflective of global inequities in wealth and power. Um, now, we've been allowing um, the brain drain uh, to, um, to exist because, um, because of the ethic of personal autonomy, that people should have the individual choice to migrate. They should have the choice of what prof profession they pursue. Um, so personal autonomy is, is a very important right in most uh, industrialized societies of the global north. And this more or less uh, has trumped other ethical considerations um, like the uh, like community needs or national needs. But the big picture overall uh, is a move from poor to wealthier nations. And these, these people with skills are... Uh, are more often than not moving in that direction. And so we do have to acknowledge that we, um, that we are taking highly qualified people from needy communities and poorer nations, and that we rely passively or actively on this ethic of personal autonomy to support this, this action. What's interesting to me, though, is that we are sometimes um, not consistent in this ethical application. Um, so, for instance, there have been uh, moments in time, and, and this continues to the present day, where some jurisdictions in Canada take in these freely migrating physicians and then curtail their personal autonomy within the provincial jurisdiction, right? Uh, they issue um, provisional licenses to international medical graduates that are place-specific and time-bound. Uh, and that means you have to practice at least for a period of time in Oakport, Newfoundland, instead of the city of St. John's, for instance. And so you're engaging in a practice here that puts community needs before individual rights in your own province, while for the rest of the world, you accept and support this ethic of personal autonomy. So for me, the ethic, uh, the ethical um, consideration primarily is being consistent. Like, what, what do we believe as Canadians? Um, if we are going to put community needs ahead of personal autonomy within the borders of our own jurisdictions, then we, we should probably recognize the need to do that outside of our, our national borders as well, because it's expensive to train a physician. And if some of these doctors, even in part, have had state funding to support their medical education, then you can, you can understand why since the 1990s that African nations, led by South Africa, as you rightly point out, have have um, have called for compensation um, in light of this. So those that's where my thinking on this issue has has revolved over the last uh, over the last few years. Well, Sasha, I really appreciate you reflecting on this very difficult question. Some would call it a dilemma, and I want to thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it, and I do hope that you're going to continue to do more work in this area. I hope so too, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. My guest today was Professor Sasha Mullally. She is the co-author with David Wright of Foreign Practices, Immigrant Doctors in the History of Canadian Medicare, published and about to be released by McGill-Queen's University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. 
This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on October 23rd, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.